Welcome to a special edition of Beyond Your News Feed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Political Science Department. I am William Hudson, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and host of this podcast. Last week, after 20 years of conflict, the Afghanistan Taliban took effective control of the country. The rapid collapse of the Afghan government forces clearly surprised American officials and has led to the continuing chaotic removal of Afghan refugees, American citizens, citizens of allied NATO countries and NGO workers. While events are moving quickly and we are far from knowing what the outcome of these events will be, Beyond Your Newsfeed wants to offer some perspective and context on these events. With me today to provide that perspective and expert analysis of the events in Afghanistan is my colleague and our department's comparative politics of the Middle East expert, Associate Professor of Political Science, Gazim Zanzurchi. Gazim Zanzurchi, welcome once again to Beyond Your Newsfeed. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. So, Gazem, a lot to talk about here, uh, just right from the headlines uh, today. Um, Why don't we, you know, Beyond Your News Feed is about context and providing some deeper analysis of what's going on. So, why don't we begin by reviewing a bit the recent history of Afghanistan, even maybe not so recent, going back to, say, the 1970s. And how did we get to where we are now in Afghanistan? What have been the sort of events that have led up to this uh, particular uh, um, period uh, in in the country's history? Um, Of course, Afghanistan um, has a very long and formidable history, but we can only cover so much in the modern period. I like to think of the modern Afghan history in four acts, especially from 1970s. And people or like younger people who may not know this history, and it is important to understand that Afghanistan has always been a a so-called battleground during the Cold War. And this has continued into the collapse of the Soviet Union and to today. Um, During the 1970s, uh, up until the 1970s, Afghanistan was a monarchy. But during the 1970s, a communist movement took over that was backed by the Soviet Union and continued to have strong ties to the Soviet Union uh, governing governing Afghanistan during this period. However, uh, since Afghanistan was a important country for both the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, the Soviet invasion occurred in 1979, which led to an almost um, decade long Afghan war or protracted war or civil war with involvement from both Soviet Union and the United States. During this decade, the 1980s, a couple of important things happened. One is uh, Osama bin Laden supposedly traveled to Afghanistan for the first time right after the Soviet invasion. Yeah, could we we back up there, stop there just a minute, uh, Zim? So the Soviet invasion in 1979, that was an invasion to prop up the communist government, right? That was in trouble. Yes. and to prevent the United States from expanding its influence in the region. Um, And the communist government uh, was not necessarily um, very popular among the Afghan population. Um, And there were multiple reasons for it, but one was that they were imposing a very uh, radical communist agenda. And in this case, it was, for example, um, attacked religious expression. And the Soviet Union wanted to protect their own interests, uh, which is why they invaded Afghanistan and set up a, first supported the previous communist government and then set up new communist governments to uh, extend their influence in the the region. Yes. Yeah, so even at that time, the the religious factor was, was important. That is the communists, were, were not in favor of, wanted to discourage 
um, Muslim worship. And so there would have, would have been a lot of resentment against the communist government from, you know, pious Muslims in Afghanistan at the time. It, it's hard to tell if it was, um, it, it's kind of like a chicken and egg problem, I think. I don't think we can assume that there was already a strong Islamic identity prior to the communist government or the Soviet invasion or the uh, Cold War machinery uh, that was then just, you know, came out in 1990s, which I will talk about in a little bit, but that this level of uh, international involvement, meddling of foreign politicians, foreign international governments, and also the creation of such a tension between um, between the communist ideals and anybody who was opposing this communist government hence fell back on religious identity. It's also important to keep in mind that um, these choices were, were um, shaped by the context. Like I wanna emphasize that we need to acknowledge the uh, agency of the Afghan people when we look at Afghanistan. But we also need to understand that their choices, whether it is uh, communism or Islam or something else is always influenced by the domestic, political, and international context. Mm -hmm. Okay, so back to where you were, you were. in the 1980s, uh, the Soviets have invaded, uh, they have an occupying army there, uh, and uh, Osama bin Laden visits. So, so, so what happens then in the 1980s? Well, one of the important things that happens is uh, there emerges these militia groups, rebel groups, or warlords, as they're often referred to. And one of them, well, at the time, in 1980s, they were referred to as the Mujahedin. And one of the important nuggets of information from Afghan history is that the United States uh, armed these militant groups during the 1980s in order to um, make them powerful vis-a-vis -vis the uh, Soviet-backed army, Afghan army and the Soviet invaders and the government that was also supported by the Soviet Union. Uh, so at the time, the Mujahideen, according to some, were actually seen as uh, freedom fighters, fighting against the Soviet Union, fighting against communism, and true defenders of the Afghan people. Um, and also, of course, the, the distribution of military equipment at the time also created longer problems for, uh, for Afghanistan. In the end, um, there was a peace agreement was signed in 1989 between the Soviet Union, the United States, and Afghanistan. They kind of came together. But this didn't really create peace for Afghanistan because the warlords and the militant groups were still there. There was a communist government that was kind of, uh, that had been backed by the Soviet Union and still had the support of the Afghan population that felt an affinity uh, to, uh, to Russia, you know, although that was changing very quickly at the time. And in the, towards the middle of the century, sorry, towards the middle of the decade in 1994, 1995, Taliban became a powerful Islamic group, later storming the capital and taking over power in Afghanistan. And there was some resistance to this, but also Afghan people were uh, fed up with drought and violence and economic difficulties. So some of them also supported Taliban in the hopes that this new government would provide security and a sense of order. So in this period before 1994, the, uh, there had been basically a civil war. These various warlords were fighting with one another. So it had been, uh, uh, Kabul was basically destroyed, right, by the various forces fighting. I don't know exactly how much of Kabul was destroyed, but I think there was a lot of uh, destruction 
in Kabul. Uh, I do know that there was one instance, I think, um, sometime again in mid-1990s, where uh, maybe a little later, 1997, where Taliban destroyed some uh, very old ancient Buddhist uh, sculptures in Afghanistan, arguing that this was not uh, appropriate according to Islam, and this created a lot of international uh, frenzy, understandably. Um, but the, the key point here is that there, was, there wasn't much of an order before Taliban took power, and although some sense of order was created afterwards, it was very oppressive and problematic during the second half of, the, of this decade, the 1990s. Right. And could you say a little bit more about that? I mean, the, the Taliban come in and saying, well, we're going to now bring about peace, stop this fighting among all these warlords, but they impose a pretty severe regime. Uh, you want to say a little something about yes. that in the uh, 90s? The, yeah. So Taliban, of course, is a Islamist movement that has changed, but during the 1990s, I think it's fair to say that it was a fundamentalist movement that did not shy away from using violent techniques, whether that is through terrorism or oppression to achieve their goals. When they came to power at this, you know, around 1995, um, they imposed very strict rules and regulations which they claimed to be Islamic. This included strict gender segregation, uh, banning listening to music, banning uh, certain kinds of ways of dressing for men. But more importantly, they really instituted one of the strictest rules for governing Muslim women's lives including what they had to wear. They were asked, they were, you know, they had to wear very, um, they had to cover themselves in a way that was uh, only left their eyes open for a while. Uh, they couldn't leave the house without a husband present. They weren't allowed to go to school. Um, and it was, uh, this was one of the most uh, shocking and surprising and unexpected to a certain degree, political moves by the Taliban, which has resulted in the later um, a, a growing interest, and in some ways rightly so, about saving Afghan women in, from the hands of Taliban. Yeah. So this was not a democracy, clearly. Um, it was not a moderate Islamic movement. It was a fundamentalist Islamic movement that uh, governed with an iron fist to the extent that they can uh, among the other warlords. And all that changed with 9-11, right? That's really the key event. That oh, yes, I'd say most of that changed with 9-11. Uh, so when 9-11 happened, um, we don't have to get too much into it, I guess, but the United States government responded by waging a war on terror. And at the time, they believed, the United States government believed that Osama bin Laden was in Afghanistan, uh, which turned out to be true later on, I believe. Um, and so going into Afghanistan and getting control of any kind of terrorist group, including Al-Qaeda, was, was the major goal of the war on terror. Um, so it didn't take the United States government to overthrow the Taliban. It was a very quick uh, overthrow, actually. But then uh, this has been going on for now 20 years. And I think one of the reasons why uh, Biden withdrew from Afghanistan as a result of Trump signing an agreement was the realization that we're coming up to the 20 years of the 9-11. And so it has been 20 years of US military involvement in Afghanistan and attempts to create a um, state that can hold on its own. But the initial goal, among other things, was to uh, overthrow the Taliban, 
create stability to the country and the region, um, weed out terrorist factions, and make sure that you know what is referred to as Islamic terrorism is not powerful, does not become more powerful, and also uh, protect Afghan women from the hands of Taliban. Um, these were the stated goals of the US military uh, involvement during the war of terror in Afghanistan. Yeah. So it did change everything, as you said. Um, and much gains have been made since then for um, life in Afghanistan, but also some things did not really go uh, as well as expected. Okay, and in this 20-year period, there was like a struggle to establish a sort of legitimate uh, Afghan government that could control the country. Uh, but that project uh, just never worked out. What were some of the obstacles to creating a stable sort of legitimate government that could control uh, all the territory in Afghanistan. Yeah, so one of the major goals of this 20 year period, as you said, was the project of state building, building a strong state in Afghanistan. Um, and just to you know, make it clear, this is a very difficult thing for to accomplish. And there are examples of it working successfully in Germany and Japan after World War II. But most military interventions uh, undertaken in the name of state building have not really worked out in the past 40, 50 years. Nevertheless, um, there are some things that are important if for a state building project to work out. One is pre-existing state capacity. If the state does not have an institutional bureaucratic capacity, widespread public institutions, a way to uh, respond to and engage with the citizenry. Uh, a military uh, intervention is unlikely to create that kind of a strong state tradition from scratch. Um, so that has been one of the difficulties in Afghanistan, as well as Iraq, I believe, is that these states did not have a strong, strong state bureaucracy to begin with. Um, and building it from scratch was, was, was both difficult and overwhelming for uh, occupying forces. Yeah, that means that th there, there were no, uh, no people or institutions uh, to operate sort of basic government functions. Like no, there wasn't a a functioning police force in communities. Uh, there wasn't, uh, there weren't trained bureaucrats who knew how to sort of collect taxes and keep the, build roads and do the various things that, that we expect governments to do, right? Yeah, I mean, it goes back to how we think about modern governments. Uh, modern governments or modern states are, you know, th there are a couple of things they do. They provide security and order. They collect taxes to provide security and order. And in this process, they uh, also provide social services, which is education, sometimes healthcare, infrastructure, really uh, what might be considered very basic stuff. But this basic stuff is not that easy to create. And when we look at the history of state formation in Europe, we see that it took a very long time for different factions and violent groups that competed over resources and influence to create modern European nation states. Uh, Charles Tilly has this excellent and very famous argument uh, the article is the book, the article is titled War Making and State Making. And in this, he argues that um, wars make states and not vice versa. So, for a state to become a prominent, strong force, there is a long process of war making between different factions. For many of these states, in the Middle East and South Asia and Latin America, 
do not have this long process of uh, factions and warlords fighting it out and building upwards to a bureaucracy that can create a balance between taxation and providing order. Um, so we do have to keep in mind that state building is a messy and long-winded process and many countries in the global south have not been able to have this long process as european nation states were experienced over centuries um and the other point about state other point about state building i wanted to make um is the kind of involvement the United States had in Afghanistan for the past 20 years. By which I mean, uh, there were a couple of issues that you know, we can highlight. One is that it was never a very centralized involvement. It was had kind of a diverse and fluid uh, in sphere of influence. And it was also not uh, only governed by the United States. There were a lot of other international organizations and other countries involved, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But I think that uh, in this case, uh, the lack of a singular authority may have actually been detrimental for building a strong state capacity and getting rid of alternative factions that might actually compete with that kind of political power. Yeah, so are you saying there then, like for example, this the central government, the 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 president of Afghanistan and and his government uh, had to compete with maybe international aid organizations that were making arrangements with people within Afghan society over which they had very little control, so that people in society didn't didn't only depend upon the central government, but had these other places that they could get resources and the like. Is that, is that what you mean? I, I think that's a good, that's one way of putting it. Uh, for example, when aid was given to, or, you know, to Japan or Germany, it went through a central government. But today, of course, foreign aid, international aid, humanitarian aid, uh, travels through civil society organizations. Um, which is believed to contribute to democratization and create a vibrant associational activity. Um, I'm not sure about Afghan civil society and the details of how this uh, aid process worked, but from my experience in other contexts, uh, promoting democratization by giving out aid to civil society organizations does not work unless there is a strong institutional capacity of the state. So you need a strong state to have a strong civil society. And I don't think this was the case in Afghanistan. And so it seems to me that that situation could open up possibilities for corruption. That is, uh, sure. there's all kinds of aid coming in and there's no centralized authority really monitoring where it's going and, and, and how it's being used. And so you could have actors who were basically lining their own pockets privately uh, and becoming sort of alternative power centers and mm -hmm. sort of controlling all that was a real, real challenge. And this has been one of the concerns with uh, successive Afghan governments from Karzai to Ghani about, you know, the president who just left and you know, rumors about him leaving in a helicopter with lots of gold and money, for example. Um, and I don't think that's actually specific to Afghanistan, but certainly the lack of accountability definitely has made issues more problematic in this instance. Yeah, and, and you mentioned Karzai and Ghani, and uh, I know there's lots of other Afghan officials who who came back to the country after uh, the American invasion in uh, 2001, 2002, but they had actually lived outside the country for quite a while. Karzai had lived in the United States. Ghani had, had taught at Princeton, I think, right? So, I so think these so. people who had been away for maybe a couple of decades and now coming back in, 
Well, would that create some problems for creating a stable government? Um, I think it creates a tension within Afghan society, uh, a tension that, you know, politicians are either with us or against us, or either they are true Afghans or they are actually sellouts to, you know, United States or other powers. And I would say that kind of a rift is not specific to Afghanistan, uh, but it certainly allows groups like Taliban to kind of use this, you know, hatred toward the United States or suspicion towards the United States to their own favor by decreasing the legitimacy of these uh, political figures who, you know, then are argued, you know, they're not true leaders, they lived in the other countries, they ran away and they came back, etc. Um, I also I also suspect that these presidents themselves or these political leaders themselves also did some problematic things that probably contributed to this kind of a perception. Um, but you know leadership is important either way and it definitely highlights that kind of a problem was at the heart of uh, most of Afghan political issues, for sure. In spite of the, the governmental instability, it's clear that Afghan society has changed dramatically uh, in the last 20 years, at least in urban areas, right? Mm -hmm. So, so, so what, what happened there and how might that pose some difficulties for, for the Taliban now that they're coming back into power? Um, so in the last 20 years, there has been, you know, urbanization and accompanied by uh, changes in the rights afforded to populations, especially women, increase in education, increase in uh, freedom of speech, so on. In, there are pockets um, in urban Afghanistan where um, it is a very liberal environment. Um, with women's rights being recognized. Um, the rural areas, in, by contrast, have suffered greatly under the um, military occupation and also the ongoing skirmish between different forces, including you know, drone attacks in Pakistan in moment. Um, if we were to you know, try to be hopeful, I think that the protest against Taliban takeover um, is a shows that you know the Afghan population is not going to just uh, submit to this new political rule, and they are going to use their agency and make choices, and hopefully be able to um, pressure the Taliban into changing their ways, maybe moderate to some extent. Um, but I think it's too early to tell how this newly urbanized, wealthier population uh, will react to the political rule of Taliban. What do we know about the current Taliban and how they may differ from the, the, the guys who were running the country back in the late 1990s? Uh, is, this, is this exactly the same people or... Are, are there some differences that, that uh, we should look out for? Um, I, I think it's definitely a different kind of Taliban, uh, but I'm not saying this to mean that it's progressive or better in any way. Uh, but I also don't think that we can assume that you know, it's been 25 years since Taliban assumed power in 1995. Um, in many other places, uh, when we study Islamist movements and their changes in the last 30 years, we see that they have uh, transformed their political outlook, their engagement with society. They have often become more moderate, uh, more open to the outside world, more cognizant of human rights, etc. But whether or not Taliban will become more moderate remains to be seen. And there are a couple of reasons for it is partially, uh, one important reason I think is 
moderation of Islamist movements requires inclusion. If Islamist movements are not included into the political system, whether that's through elections or conversation or um, other kinds of political engagements, they do not have a reason to become more moderate. Um, moderate Islam is beneficial for Islamist movements because then they can actually allow them to come to power, which is also not what's happening in the case of Taliban. So for Taliban, it's either they are outside of the political system or they are in power. So they never had to go through that process of political inclusion and negotiation and having kind of a dance with different political coalitions and groups and deciding, okay, here's what we want to do, the compromise. That part is, I think, is why we can't really see what Taliban is or will do. That's why I think in most of the people who work on Afghanistan uh, and in general on this, these issues are waiting to see how this new Taliban will act. I assume there are factions within the Taliban. Almost every political movement has factions, right? That the, that the, certainly for the last 20 years, they've been very united in, in fighting a single foe, the Americans. They have a, they had their goal of forcing the Americans out of Afghanistan, of regaining power. That would tend to unify uh, a movement. Uh, but now that they uh, are, are, are conceivably going to be taking power, uh, is there a possibility that these various factions within Taliban might lead to some, some decision or conflict within the Taliban movement itself? I mean, I think we can look at these groups through a couple of different categorizations. One is that, that there are some that are more radical and fundamentalist, and they would want to go back to the conservative Islamic refashioning. Um, and they have some of some some Taliban leaders have said, yes, we will recognize women's rights, but we will do so in an Islamic context, for example. It's not clear what that means. So their um, their understanding of what they're doing is more ideological, a way to uphold Islam as a religion, and they are going to stick to it, whereas others will be um, more pragmatic and try to speak to different segments of Afghan society. Uh, and of course, try to get the support of maybe international factors uh, by either using democracy as just a, like a slogan to get what they want, or actually maybe they actually believe in democratic processes. So we can't really assume that they do not. Um, so there's that angle, that separation of the radical fundamentalist versus uh, progressive pragmatic. Uh, another way to think about the factions within Taliban is to think about their relations with uh, other countries. Um, and I think that in within Taliban, we see groups that are supported by Iran, groups that are supported by Pakistan, and groups that that are supported by even probably the United States. Um, and I don't mean supported in the like, they're supported wholeheartedly, but have some closer or more formidable relations. And so how Taliban factions play out or um, form new coalitions will also depend on the uh, international actors involvement. Yeah, so that's interesting. I, I saw in the press today that the the director of the CIA was in Afghanistan, uh, I guess the last couple of days, meeting with uh, this fellow Bandahar, who is one of the leaders of the Taliban. Uh, so would that maybe be an example of already the United States trying to identify certain Taliban with whom they can have relationships and exert pressure? Yeah, that's a great example. Um, and also shows us that this idea that, okay, U.S. has left Afghanistan. They're on their own. It's not true. Um, and like with other kinds of similar examples, it has never been true. Yes, U.S. has left in terms of a military force. Maybe, you know, we don't have boots on the ground. 
Um, there is less of a, a military and economic presence, but the U.S. has not left Afghanistan and decisions. So, for example, Afghanistan was going to receive an extensive amount of aid from the IMF in the past couple of weeks for uh, social services, for women's rights, children's rights, literacy. And the Biden administration actually blocked the distribution of these IMF funds because they weren't sure who was going to end up with the money. So if the US was really out of Afghanistan, they wouldn't be able to make these decisions. Right. <laughs> and so that's leverage. But you're also saying other powers like Pakistan also have their contacts within parts of the Taliban as well. Yes, of course. I mean, and I'm not saying it's just the United States. It, it has never been. But I think that both the United States, Pakistan, Iran, China, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, we do have an interest in a stable Afghanistan. I, at least that's my hope. Um, but how they go about promoting a stable Afghanistan uh, may actually end up creating more conflict. So um, that's also something that remains to be seen. And are there possibilities? I mean, I'm thinking about uh, I mean, one of the of Afghanistan's neighbors is Iran, obviously. Uh, and in Iran, you have an, an Islamic regime, which is a Shiite regime. The Taliban are Sunni, correct? So, so they're, they're on this other side of this sort of divide within Islam. Is there a potential for conflict between Iran and Afghanistan under a Taliban government? I mean, it's hard to tell. I would think that Iran would not want to have two neighbors that are in a protracted civil war situation. Um, well, of course, you know, Syria is further down, but um, I, I think that stability in Afghanistan uh, would be more in the interest of Iran instead of entering a war with, you know, despite the Sunni-Shia split. Also, I don't think Iran has the economic resources or the military force to undertake such a, um, such an endeavor right now. Iran is probably in a more difficult situation than Afghanistan in some ways, even if we're not really talking about, uh, talking about it because you know, that's not what's, what this is about. So I don't think that's, a, that's an issue, but um, it remains to be seen, sure. And could you tell us more about Pakistan's role in all of this and, and their interests and how they might affect uh, Afghanistan's future? That's the other neighbor on the other yeah. side. Well, so Pakistan, it's a little bit more complicated. Uh, so like one of the things is that over these decades, many Afghan people have uh, sought refugee status in Iran as well as Pakistan. So both of these countries have uh, refugee Afghan populations. So making sure that Afghanistan remains stable means that they do not have to host additional refugees. Um, this is also another issue is, as you know, you know, I, I study Turkish politics, I'm from Turkey. The past couple of weeks, even before the Afghanistan, you know, the, it was in the news all the time, uh, the Turkish news was constantly about uh, groups of Afghan men walking through the border, being allowed to come in to seek asylum or become refugees in Turkey and the problems of how are we going to actually take care of these people. There was a lot of um, kind of a backlash. So that's one issue is that for both of these countries, uh, Afghanistan means what are we going to do to support the refugees if we end up having more, which they have actually welcomed more refugees. Another aspect is for Pakistan, uh, Taliban is a, you know, is a violent enemy. So having the, uh, this terrorist organization or what they consider to be a terrorist organization to become the government of their next door neighbor 
uh, is probably going to be problematic. And I don't see it, them having great relations, at least initially. So I think Pakistan would be in favor of restricting Taliban's power if they could, but uh, it may also be the case that maybe that ship has already sailed. Right. But as you say, they also may have uh, connections with certain factions within the Taliban that they might. They may be trying, they may try to exert influence, at least shape the future of the government in their own favor, whether that's economic or um, whether that's economic or maybe um, political, yeah. And what about, there's evidently a group uh, in northern Afghanistan that are trying to foment a, a new insurgency against the Taliban. Uh, what do you think are the prospects for that taking hold? Is there, is there a possibility that there will be groups, uh, that the Taliban will might be fighting a war uh, themselves against insurgents? Um, I mean, I, I guess that would be maybe ironic, <laughs> but um, and it would be interesting to see how a rebel group itself corresponds or responds to an insurgent group, of, you know, people who are fighting against them. Uh, I do think that it is likely that Afghanistan will continue to remain in a situation where there is violence and civil war between a new, new militant groups and Taliban, if Taliban finds a way to remain in power as the government. Um, or there may actually be just um, kind of a break between in the country between those who support Taliban and those who support other kinds of political powers. I think that uh, negative scenarios are more likely than positive scenarios at this point, uh, unless, you know, something changes. Um, and the result may be a fragmented civil war that is, uh, makes it even more, you know, a problematic region for the rest of the world and problematic situation for Afghan people themselves. And, and that scenario might lead the central Taliban leadership to become uh, harsher and, and less moderate, right? If they, if they, if they, if there are challenges to their power, that they yeah. might respond with repression. They might. Um, I, although I don't know if I mean, I would say that the best option would be to sit down and talk with different factions of society. Um, I don't know if that is going to happen. I don't think further oppression and repression of oppositional voices or those who may not agree with how the country is going is going to solve the problem in the long run. But of course, uh, the you know attempt towards building a, well, let's not call it a democracy, but at least a, well, I don't know if that's the intent, but at least a, a order and peace uh, I'm not sure if that is really in Taliban's um, interests, because when the agreement, when the uh, Trump administration signed an agreement with Taliban last year, there were multiple criteria that the Taliban had to meet. And one of them was they had to stop using violence, but they didn't. Uh, only for a small period during the uh, Islamic holiday of Eid did they uh, ceasefire. So uh, if they were really committed to building peace and order, I think they would have acted differently until this point. Right. Now, there have been discussions between the Taliban leaders, evidently, and former President Karzai and uh, the former Vice President Abdullah Abdullah, uh, who are you know, prominent figures. I presume they have supporters within Afghan society. I mean, is there, are there prospects for maybe some kind of a, um, not purely Taliban regime, but a, a, some, some sort of a, a more pluralistic uh, regime emerging? Um, or is that just a, a pipe dream? Are we gonna see a, a Islamic state of uh, Islamic, Islamic Emirate, right? That's the 
terminology they use. That's what they use. I, I, I think it's possible to see a power sharing deal between Taliban and other um, power brokers. I don't know if that would be Karzai, uh, but you know anybody that can actually um, kind of respond to the people's needs and create a coming together of different factions would work. Um, uh, I think it's possible, but as I said, it's less likely. And I, I think anything that would happen, it also depends on what the Afghan people want and how much they are able to voice their concerns, whether that is vis-a-vis, you know, Taliban or Karzai or uh, U.S. forces, uh, whether that's, you know, clear voice forces or, you know, not so implicit goals. Um, And one of the things we're seeing right now with the U.S. withdrawal is a lot of the... um, civil society actors, journalists, uh, movie producers, especially women are leaving the country or are trying to leave the country because they worry about the repercussions they would face. So even if a deal is reached between Taliban and Karzai or Taliban and other you know, power holders in society, without, a, without these voices from civil society, if they are all leaving, then I think that is um, not going to be very ideal, of course. It seems the Taliban themselves are aware of this problem of, of people leaving. Uh, the news report today was that the Taliban announced that they weren't going to let Afghan citizens leave anymore. Uh, whether or not they'll be able to prevent that is, is another question, but but they seem to be concerned about kind of the brain drain, these these people who have, in fact, run Afghan institutions, particularly in urban areas, uh, if they all leave, who's going to keep the electricity going or the the water system? I mean, that's one way to look at it, or they want them to not leave so they can prosecute them and oppress them and put them in jail. So, like, I I hope you are right that they want, you know, the educated uh, or, like, you know, people who worked in the bureaucracy to stay so that they can, you know, work together to build a better country, etc. But it could also mean that um, they want, you know, these oppositional voices to stay so that um, they can get revenge. And I think it's hard to say that when you are a person who is, you know, scared about what's going to happen next, which is why we are seeing the images about people leaving uh, trying to leave Afghanistan as quickly as they can. But it, it, if the Taliban are rational political actors, you would think they would have concerns about uh, keeping the lights on and and that might cause them to hesitate about being too repressive at this point. Uh, well, I guess I think they are rational political actors which also have to calculate the costs and benefits of keeping actors who can keep the lights on, as you said, versus the opposition they might face from such figures, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, so do, is it worth it? Is it worth keeping um, these kinds of educated or knowledgeable people around if it's going to be undermining their political authority? Uh, and I, I'm not sure how they would calculate that kind of a analysis right now, honestly. Yeah, we, there seems to be a lot of unknowns here uh, as to what's going to happen. It's a very fluid and, and uncertain situation. Uh, well, I mean, any kind of political upheaval, whether that's a collapse or creation of a new regime, it is quite difficult to know how things are going to evolve in the aftermath. Um, And there are a couple of factors that might result in a more positive outcome is to um, having kind of networks across different groups, 
whether that's different political groups, whether that's different economic groups, or whether that's in this case, you know, supporters of Taliban, um, and the willingness to actually talk about the past and to, you know, move forward. Um, and I think that the chaos in Afghanistan has not allowed for groups to come together and bring society together and figure out a way to move forward. Um, but that would be something to look out in the next couple of weeks, I think. Very good. Well, thank you, uh, Professor Zanzerchi, for some interesting insights. Uh, do you want to leave, leave us with some final wisdom? Uh, anything that your crystal ball is telling you that we ought to watch out for in particular? Um, final wisdom. Well, I think that we should, as people who live in the United States, we should be careful about how Afghanistan is represented in U.S. media. Um, from the, uh, I, I would recommend looking at the 1984 National Geographic Afghan girl representation to the representation of Afghan women and how the war on terror was um, explained as a way to save Afghan women to today where we are seeing a re-emergence of these narratives. Uh, and to emphasize that whether it's Afghan women or men, we need to come from a point that acknowledges the agency of Afghan people but also realize that their choices, whether it's in support of Taliban or the Karzai government previously, or any other kind of uh, political movement that might emerge are also shaped by a long couple of decades of US involvement. So I think that, um, I, I that, that's what I would you know, recommend is that that's what my final wisdom is. Afghanistan is, uh, is an issue that Americans cannot say, we're not responsible for it, we've already left. Um, but also keep in mind that they, we are, Americans are not responsible for everything happens either. So find a uh, strategic middle ground of moral responsibility and political responsibility. Yeah, okay, so not expecting to control events, but also not being totally detached. Yes, that's, that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> have, as Americans, responsibility for the, the people of Afghanistan and, and need to be mindful of that. Yeah. Okay, very good. Well, that's, a, I think, some insights into what's going on in this very fluid situation. We'll have to have you back perhaps in a, in a couple of months uh, after things develop uh, and get your insights on how things are shaping up in the country. Yeah. That, that sounds like a plan. Hopefully we'll have some better news by then. Okay, well, thank you very much, Professor Gazim Zinzerchi. Uh, thanks for uh, helping us out to understand Afghanistan today. Uh, thanks also to Chris Judge of the Providence College Office of Marketing and Communications for doing the production work on this podcast. And thanks to our listeners. Please tell your friends about Beyond Your News Feed.